Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla, and thank you so much for joining me for this Discam Medical Monday. Now, for many of us, you know, we we get married, we have kids. Uh, there's an aspect of family planning, perhaps, and we just take it for granted that when it's time to get pregnant, we get pregnant, and we have our children, and we become parents. But uh, if statistics are to be believed, more and more people are not finding that the case and they are needing help, um, you know, falling pregnant. So uh, I've invited into studio um, Dr. Ghulam Hussein Muhammad and we're going to be talking about male and female infertility. You know, what are the different um, causes, what are the different aspects of male and female infertility? If you've got any questions... Don't be shy to share them and uh, comments as well. You know, we we always love your insights and your comments. If you want it to be anonymous, just sign anonymous and uh, be very happy to read it anonymously. Uh, how do you get in touch? Well, you can SMS at uh, 34519. That's the SMS line. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50 an SMS. Or you can WhatsApp on 062 one four eight two three seven four, and uh, WhatsApp's fantastic because you can send us pictures, videos, uh, text, as well as voice notes, and uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, get in touch with any comments. It can be any questions, and uh, really have a top top level expert in studio, Professor. Uh, sorry, Doctor Gulam Hussein Muhammad, and welcome. To Disco Medical Monday, and it's lovely to have you here. Thank you, thank you, Cassie. Thank you for having me. Why do you think that uh, infertility seems to be on the increase? Well, I'm not too sure whether it is on the increase, but uh, there's a lot of people say it is, and is it due to maybe, you know, we have a larger population now? But uh, definitely there is uh, about 20% of the population, of any adult population, that battles with fertility. Yeah. So some people say it's increased. Well, I'm not very sure whether the increase is real or imagined. It's quite interesting because if you look at women today in the workplace, many companies, uh, you know, especially the big corporates like Google, Facebook, with their female executives, they're actually um, paying to have the woman's eggs frozen so that she can delay parenthood. Do you think that... Um, woman having children older is contributing to infertility. Definitely, definitely. Where couples are now delaying childbearing because the female partner needs to get her uh, career on track, it's definitely having an impact on it. And uh, like you say, major companies in the United States and in the UK are, you know, giving their female employees, especially the uh, female employees who are getting on in their careers. Uh, an allowance to have the eggs frozen. And in the last few years, egg freezing has become a real possibility. So with women delaying childbearing, it's a very good idea that, uh, that does take place. Of course, in South Africa, we don't have such a, such a move. It's much more expensive and it's self-funded. But in, in places like, uh, the United States at Google and that, there are people that are starting to fund this sort of Program. So what are the other factors that would contribute to infertility in women? <clears throat> well, I mean, age is a major factor today, right, worldwide. 
But in our country, the major population, the major problem is tubal factor. In other words, blocked tubes amongst females. And it's a direct result of pelvic infections. Then there's also, you know, ovulatory problems where as a result of things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, women don't ovulate regularly. They do ovulate, but not regularly. So those are some of the problems in addition to problems like fibroids. So uh, in our country, we have a lot of problems. In Africa, we have a lot of problems with fibroids. And that's also as a result of, uh, again, delayed childbearing. Mm. Endometriosis is another problem which is becoming much more common as the population becomes more sophisticated. And we're seeing about 14 to to 18% of the population has endometriosis. Uh, Endometriosis, let's just talk about endometriosis for a little while. No, it used to be something that was very rare. Now it seems to be a buzzword. No, it seems to be more people are talking about it, more people, more women are being diagnosed with it. Yeah, more people are being diagnosed with it because, I mean, it's much more now readily diagnosable from the point, you know, with a laparoscope. But uh, is it becoming, again, much more common? We're not very sure because we're not, we're not really sure what causes endometriosis. We know that probably stress plays a major role in the causation of endometriosis. And are we more stressed today than we were 20 years oh, ago? Oh, definitely not. 25 years. <laughs> so, so that's the question. Look how relaxed you know? we are. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's a problem. It's a real problem. Endometriosis is a real problem in a, in a society like ours, and we're picking up more and more of it. Yeah. All right. Um, so those are really, um, we're going to go back and, and look at each, uh, at each one of the points that you've, that you've mentioned, the tubal factors, the, um, the, uh, what did you call it? Ovulation. The ovulatory, ovulatory factors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the polycystic, you know, yeah. we're going to be looking at all of that. Yeah. If you've got any questions, well, send them through. My guest is Dr. Gulam Hussein Muhammad. He's got a, he's in private practice. He's a gynecologist in private practice. Uh, his practice is actually in Waverley. So, uh, yeah, you just get in touch with us with your questions. Isn't it nice to have access to, to a doctor like this? Uh, 34519, that's the SMS line. Alternatively, you can WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. Those uh, WhatsApps, WhatsApp's wonderful because you can send memes, you can send pictures, you can send text questions as well as uh, voice notes. And if you do, would like to keep it anonymous, I'm happy to do that. So, uh, or just, you know what? Throw in somebody else's name. There we go. So, uh, get in touch. We want to talk to you. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla. I'm your host for until uh, 10 o'clock this morning. And uh, this is the Discam Medical Monday. Now, uh, you know, we're talking about male and female uh, infertility. There's different factors that affect each gender. So uh, we've started off with the female, and uh, my guest is Dr. Gulam Hussein Muhammad. He is a gynecologist in private practice. He's got a practice in Waverley, Johannesburg. And uh, some of the factors that he mentioned was, you know, tubal factor, ovulatory uh, factors, uh, polycystic um, problems, endometriosis. So uh, let's look at some of those points. Uh, Dr. Mohammed, 
what is what do you when you say tubal factor? What do you mean by tubal factor? <coughs> well, the tubes are actually the fallopian tubes are actually the transport of the eggs and the sperm. That's where fertilization takes place. How big are they actually? Sorry. How big or how thin are they actually? They're, they're very thin. They're very thin, but they're about. About five centimeters, five to six centimeters, and they sort of cover the ovary. They're nearly attached to the ovary. And it is when ovulation takes place that these tubes actually grab the egg and transport it. They got little hair in the tube. And those are unique as they, 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 they bidirectional. For example, they would actually transport the uh, sperm and the egg so that fertilization can take place in about the center of the tube. Isn't that incredible? And then, that hair actually transport the fertilized embryo towards the uterus. So in other words, it can move in both directions. That, 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 that's a unique feature of it. So unfortunately, infection, pelvic infection, especially chlamydial infection, which is a sexually transmitted infection, can destroy those hair. They call it cilia. And once those hair are destroyed, unfortunately, the tube is non-functional. As a result of which, it also becomes blocked. And in, in the days, earlier days when IVF was not the, uh, you know, we didn't have IVF, we used to open those tubes and attempt to repair those tubes. Unfortunately, the surgery was very, very uh, sort of uh, complicated. It was microsurgical procedures that had to be done on, on the tube. The success rate was not great. These days we don't repair the tubes because we know that uh, IVF is a much better and a higher success rate than uh, repairing of the tubes. We also know that once those tubes are blocked and they get filled with toxic material, they become swollen and then they're known as hydrosalpingis. And that once people are going in for IVF, it is absolutely necessary to either remove those tubes completely or to actually block them off so that there's no retrograde flushing of the liquid. And uh, most people, if you tell them that you need to actually uh, cut those tubes up, are hesitant because they feel that you need the tubes to become pregnant, which is true if the tube is normal. But in IVF process, you bypass the tube because the egg comes from the ovary and we actually fertilize it with the sperm outside the body. And then you transfer the embryo, the fertilized embryo, back into the uterus. So the tube has no actual function in that scenario. So it is actually healthier to cut it out and it increases the success rate of IVF. I'm sure, and, and probably the life, uh, you know, your quality of life yeah. for the Hydro- sufferer as well. Hydrosalpingis cause a lot of pain normally, right? And are the cause of major pelvic pain in women. So if you remove them, the pain disappears for sure. So what are the symptoms of, uh, what, what's it called, hydrosalpingis? Unfortunately, salpingis, yeah, yeah, those are actually swollen, infected tubes. The main symptom of that is, uh, of course, pain. And in people who are not conceiving, one needs to rule that out. So, you know, it is, uh, it is in infertile women that you actually find this. Yeah. But one of the main symptoms of it is pain. And you said that it's caused by chlamydia? Chlamydia is one of the main causes of it. It's what a is sexu- chlamydia? It's actually a sexually transmitted disease, right? and <clears throat> it causes pelvic infection. <clears throat> and it's 
you know, quite prevalent, quite prevalent amongst the reproductive age of women, among the women who are of reproductive age, especially women that have multiple partners. In our country, it's quite common, and that is the cause of blocked genes. What are the symptoms of chlamydia? Yeah. I mean, if somebody has it, would they know? No, mainly they don't know. Really? They don't know, yeah. Yeah, so I mean it's basically without any symptoms. I mean there may be a st- stage where you have pain, where it becomes chronic, but largely it's asymptomatic. That's the difficult part of it. So wow. sometimes when you pick up an infection, a pelvic infection, and it's acute, in which case you'll have pain. But if somebody is sitting with it chronically, it, it's usually picked up when you look for it. And it's easy sort of to pick it up in the urine where these days they do a PCR on it and they pick up a chlamydial infection. Sure. So would you say that sexually active women um, should be testing regularly More for, important for than sexually active, sexually active women with multiple partners. Oh, so it's not That's, with just yeah, one. Yeah, it's not, no, no. It's not in a, in a, you know, a stable marital relationship. It's not so common. But multiple partners should be tested for it, yeah. And just do it anyway, even if there's no pain. Yeah, because sometimes you don't get the symptoms. You don't feel anything. Yeah, is, is chlamydia a virus or is it a, is it It's a, in between a virus and a sort of a bacterium. So, uh, you know, is there a vaccine? No. No, unfortunately, there's no vaccine for it at the moment. Vaccine is one disparate between the knees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so uh, those are the the tubal factors, and we've been talking about hydrosalpinges. Um, did I say that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, those are the tubal factors. Um, let's talk about ovulation, and uh, you know. What sorts of complications it can be in okay. okay, the ovulation problems are basically <laughs> hormonal problems And there's different types, I mean But the main one, the main one For example, there's problems where you have congenital problems You know, where pituitary problems Where the hormones are not secreted in a sequential manner But the main, the commonest one that we deal with these days Is what is known as polycystic ovarian disease And that you know, could be genetic. It also could be, you know, I mean, a lot of people are finding that it's actually now we're finding it to be more of a metabolic syndrome. That means it's it's actually connected and uh, associated with things like obesity. Obesity, of course, is dietary. And uh, with the increase of uh, of weight, you get an increase of insulin. You know, with obesity and then obesity increases the insulin, insulin further increases the, the, the obesity and it's a vicious cycle. And that is about 40% of all the patients that we deal with, with anovulatory patients. And one needs, it's basically a lifestyle problem. One needs to tackle the lifestyle so that, you know, a person has to be advised mainly to lose weight, to exercise, and of course, medical therapy of polycystic ovaries is secondary to lifestyle changes. Lifestyle change is the main, most important thing. So interesting that you say this. I was speaking to somebody, and uh, you know, I've been doing medical <coughs> shows now for ten years, and uh, we're talking about different syndromes. And he was saying that depression is caused by inflammation. Inflammation—it's a—it's something that is 
depression is a form of inflammation or if it's caused by inflammation. And he was actually saying that the medical fraternity needs to look closer at syndromes like this polycystic uh, ovarian uh, syndrome or I think disease. Yeah, well, um, in, yeah, and, it's a syndrome. And see in, the link between that. What's your thought on that? Well, you, you know, polycystic ovarian disease, I mean, it's a spectrum, okay? There's on one side of the spectrum, I mean, externally, there'll be no signs of it, okay? And on the other side, you'll get the whole full bone picture, which is obesity, which is excessive hair growth, and uh, which is an ovulation where the person is not ovulating infertility. Now, you you tend to find that in people who have uh, the most severe form of the depression, of the disease, where they are overweight and they are sort of, uh, you know, hirsute, they develop a complex, and you find them growing, growing within themselves. Now, whether that's caused by depression or or that in itself causes depression, that's the moot point. So you'll find these people withdrawn. You know, they withdraw from themselves. I, I mean, I've got a, uh, I've got many patients with this, but I've got a particularly one friend who has a daughter who actually is, has become totally introverted because of these external features of the, the disease, you know. And she tends to sort of, stay in her room, she tends to not go out at all at social functions. Even at social functions, she tends to be on the sidelines. That's so sad, because so, yeah. she sounds like a young woman. Yeah, it's a very young woman, yeah, yeah. Mm. And so they do get depressed. Now, whether the depression has come first or whether the polycystic ovary has caused the depression, you know. Yeah, but there is a question. Link. Yeah, there is a link, that sort of a link is there. Sure, very interesting. Um <coughs> Polycystic ovarian um, disease, are they actually cysts on the ovaries? Yeah, and that's where people actually, you know, see, when you when you have a patient and the patient will tell you, look, I've been to my gynae and he saw cysts on my ovaries and uh, he or she did a laparoscope for me and they actually removed all the cysts. Now, that's not possible because the, that cyst and an ovarian cyst are different. The cysts of polycystic ovary are actually not cysts. They're actually follicles which contains an egg. Wow. Right. Okay. So that is the, and, and there's a particular arrangement of that cyst in the ovary that is diagnostic and it's usually diagnosed on ultrasound. So you can go and puncture those cysts, but it doesn't mean you're removing those cysts. No, because it's the remove. egg and, yeah, and the egg is in there and the, the the pathology in that in in the polycystic ovary is that it is filled with these small cysts containing the egg, and the, there are two layers in the ovary. One is called the thicker layer, and one is called the granulosa. The thicker layer is a is a is the layer that produces the the hormone, the male hormone, and that male hormone and then is converted into the female hormone by an enzyme. But in polycystic ovary, they have a thicker, thicker layer, and that's the problem. They produce much more male hormone than a normal female. It's so and unusual. The, and the male hormone overrides the system of conversion, and it gets into the bloodstream, and that causes the hirsutism and all that. That's, okay, so hirsutism being excess... It, excess uh, hair growth hair. in areas, yeah. In yeah. A, sort of a, it's a non-female distributive uh, hormone, yeah. That's so interesting, because... 
you know, as a, as a layperson, what you're explaining, I would I would assume that the egg that is embedded in you know in the wall in the cell wall of the of the ovary would actually on, in some way make the body think that it was somehow pregnant and would produce yeah. more female hormone yeah. rather than male it hormone. Produces more male hormone, yeah. And 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 you see that is why sometimes, well, I mean because of this male hormone story. The, there is a hormonal imbalance, and as a result of that hormonal imbalance, the person has irregular menses. You'll find that sometimes these patients don't don't have a menstruation for about six months, mm. and then when they do, they have a torrential bleed. And the reason for that is that when they don't have a period, it means that the lining of the womb is not shedding, so it becomes thicker and thicker. But after a few months, it becomes so thick that it has to shed. The, the virtual weight of it just has to shed. And then they come out in the form of clots. That is why it is very important in the management of a polycystic ovary. One should manage it in either if the person wants to fall pregnant, that's a different management, or if she doesn't want to fall pregnant, and that's a different problem, and the consequences are different as well. So we can talk a little bit about management if you wish. Definitely. But, but what I actually wanted to say was <coughs> was this this problem. I mean, you know, the, you spoke about the depression, and I've very rarely seen women with the severe form of polycystic ovaries that are not depressed. That's so interesting, and obviously, uh, you know, a whole conversation on yeah, its own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other interesting part about polycystic ovaries is that when they're young, they have irregular periods, all right? And that's because of the excess hormones, that because of all these sort of, they have a vast amount of ovarian tissue that is actually producing male hormone. But when they get into their 40s and late 40s, you find that the symptoms become better. And the reason they become better is because by that time, most of the eggs and the follicles that containing the eggs are already lost. So you find that when you're 40, you have a much, uh, you have an ovary containing much less cysts yeah. and much less male hormone. So they have normal periods, normal-like periods. But by that time, it's already too late to bear children because those eggs that are present at that particular time of a woman's life are not eggs that are normal. They don't, they don't, they don't produce fertilizable eggs, sort of. If you've got any <coughs> questions about male, female infertility, then, uh, you know, why not get in touch? 34519, that's the SMS line. You can also WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. My guest is Dr. Gulam Hussein Mohammed. He's a gynecologist in private practice. In fact, uh, just not very far from our studio in Waverley. And uh, we're talking about male and female infertility and fertility today. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear your comments, love to hear about your experiences. And uh, if you've got any questions, send them through. If you want to do it anonymously, you know what, just send somebody else's name. Otherwise, put it on. Okay, then we'll know it's anonymous. So um, go on, get in touch. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists who care. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla. My guest is Dr. G. H. Muhammad, Dr. Gulam Hussein Muhammad. He's a gynecologist in private practice, and we are talking about male and female 
infertility. What are the factors that can cause infertility in either gender? So, uh, what we've spoken about, we've spoken about tubal factor, we've talked about uh, ovulatory factors, uh, which is hormonal, uh, polycystic ovarian disease, uh, which can cause obesity, um, increased insulin. It becomes a, a vicious cycle. The more insulin you produce, produce, the more obese you become. The more obese you become, the more insulin you produce. Uh, so that's uh, just a, it just snowballs. Also, excessive hair growth. Um, Let's talk a little bit about endometriosis. Um, just explain what endometriosis is. Okay, endometriosis is, unfortunately, it's, it's not a cancer, okay? But it behaves like a cancer. In other words, it can spread to other organs, and you can find endometriosis sometimes, uh, you know, uh, anywhere in the body because it spreads, and I, I think I'm, it spreads either through the bloodstream or the lymphatics. We've had one little girl, uh, it was a tragic story. I mean, she, she was actually, during the time of her period, she would bleed from every single orifice of her body. In other words, she would bleed from her eyes, she would bleed from her nose, nose she ears, would bleed everywhere. from her mouth, everywhere. Gosh. You know, and, uh, she, uh, so, so it's a disease that sort of widespread. It causes a lot of pain. It causes its life, uh, it, it alters the quality of your life in terms of, because during those periods when, uh, they do have the pain, more, a lot of women are just totally dysfunctional and non-functional. And, uh, they, they sort of confine to their bed. So in addition to infertility, the, the, the life-altering pain that this causes is devastating. And, uh, and the young person even more so. Yeah, much more so. Yeah, I mean we've we've had women that couldn't handle the pain at all, and eventually had to have a hysterectomy and a wolfectomy, and they still had no children. It also invades sometimes the bowel, so that it affects your uh, your bowel your constipation and diarrhea. It affects your bowel movements. So it's a, it's it's not a nice disease. The big problem with endometriosis is we don't know what causes it. And we think there's a genetic link. We think it's environmental in terms of stress. We know that is, uh, that is very common in type A personalities. You know, people who need to get things done and need to get things done now who are unable to relax. It's very common in that. So interesting. The basic pathology is that the lining of the womb that's called the endometrium, it actually grows in areas outside the womb and around the womb. And it affects the ovaries. It destroys ovarian tissue. And one of the, one of the theories was that there was retrograde menstruation in these people. What does As, that mean? In other words, instead of menstruating, you, the, the female does menstruate like normally, but some of that menstruation goes through the fallopian tubes. And it, and it goes and implants goes in different, ovaries. yeah, it implants in different areas of the, of the, sort of uh, pelvic uh, or abdomen. It is still an, a theory that is being accepted, uh, but then there's other problems as well, like immunological problems where the immune system of the person drops and then this happens and implantation takes place. So there's various, th- there's various theories about this, but no one actually knows exactly what causes it. When it gets into the ovary, 
it does destroy ovarian tissue. And uh, it, as a result of which it does affect infertility. The interesting thing about endometriosis is that while it does, it does grow on the fallopian tube, it does destroy the outside of the fallopian tube. In other words, it, 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 it produces adhesions between the fallopian tube and the ovary and the uterus and all those things. It doesn't affect the lining of the fallopian tube the cilia of the fallopian tube. And why why is that so? We don't know. So a lot of people who have stage 4 endometriosis, that's the severest form of endometriosis. If you check their tubes, their tubes are open, but they will still find it very, very difficult to fall pregnant without IVF, although the fallopian tubes are open. So there must be some toxic material that it produces that actually kills off the egg or the sperm, you know, that sort of thing. That may be the basis of the infertility in endometriosis patients. But in patients who have stage 3 and stage 4, their life is altered. They have a lot of pain, a lot of pain. Is it all the time? Mainly during their periods. But during those three or four periods, I mean, these people are unable to work the severe forms, they're unable to work, they, they're miserable, they're depressed. It does cause depression as well. And uh, a lot of times, a lot of analgesics, they consume a lot of analgesics which do not actually help. And there's no medical treatment for it, unfortunately. So surgery seems to be the only form of treatment for severe form of endometriosis. And does it help? Surgery, if it's done by the right people. And depending on does, obviously where yeah, it is. Yeah, it does help. And usually it's important that you, you go to people who do this properly. So that, because the first attempt at surgery is the best attempt. And it's done with, with the advance of laparoscopic work. It's done quite, uh, sort of, uh, extensively, where extensive tissue of endometriotic tissue are removed. People do get relief. You can't remove all of it, and unfortunately the recurrence rate is quite high of of the disease. I saw a, a fact that was another interview that I did about this process um, or this procedure that is being help, being used to help women who have very, very heavy Periods, and what it is, it's actually done in a in a in a cath lab, and they inject uh, through the veins into. Oh, you're calling embolization. Embolization. Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah. Couldn't think of the word. Yeah, but um, that's not. Could, a, th- could that help with endometriosis? But you see, that's not a. No, I don't think that will help. That helps mainly in fibroids. Yes. Where Which we still going to talk about as well. That, yeah, they embolize those, and then the fibroids shrink. Unfortunately, it's not a good alternative for the younger group because they still need to fall pregnant. Yeah. So if you if you embolize those, are you actually cutting off the blood supply to those fibroids, and they have to develop collateral blood supplies. But they reduce the shrink, they they reduce the bleeding. But it's not an option where women want to conceive. Oh, okay, I understood that they that they could, yeah, but yeah. okay. Um, just back to endometriosis. So surgery is the best. Is surgery the, is the best option. And yeah. how is it diagnosed? It's diagnosed usually. Well, there is a blood test which is called CA125, which, if it's abnormal, can 
lead to suspicion of endometriosis because it is also raised in other conditions. But the gold standard for endometriosis is a laparoscopy. In other words, you have to get to theater and they do a little cut on the navel and it's called minimal excess uh, surgery. And that, that's the best option for it because it, it actually gives you the best vision. And uh, there are lots of people today, no, well, not lots, but there are people today who only do that sort of work, you know, and they cut out this endometriotic tissue. Sure. Very, very specialized. Yeah, it is. It is. It's very difficult and very stressful surgery, but it's done. We're talking about male and female uh, infertility. We're still busy with the female. Clearly, lots of things are, are happening with the female that can cause infertility, just so that you understand what it is. And uh, if you've got any questions, send them through. 34519, that's a text line. Alternatively, 062-148-2374. And, uh, yeah, if you want it to be anonymous, put anonymous. Otherwise, sign your name. Um, my guest is Dr. Ghulam Hussein Mohammed. He's a gynecologist. He's in private practice. And um, let's can we talk a little bit about, you mentioned fibroids, yeah, uh, which yeah. can also cause infertility in, in women. Yeah, depending on, the, depending on the size and where they are placed. There's quite a debate whether you need to cut these fibroids out before you do IVF and whether they, in fact, do cause infertility. We do know that if they are, if they sort of impinge or are inside the uterine cavity, definitely they do cause fire, they do cause, um, uh, infertility. In our country, the amount of, uh, patients that we see with fibroids, or in fact, in fact, in the whole of Africa, it's very high, the incidence is very high. And unfortunately, patients come quite late for the surgery because by the time they get to us, the, the whole uterine cavity and the whole uterus is totally, absolutely distorted. And then you need to actually remove these fibroids, and then these patients need to go for IVF. But fibroids do cause infertility depending on where they are placed and their size, yeah. And what age? What age do they start developing? Do we know? Do we have like a range? Well, you know, about say in the 30s, right? But we have seen people with fibroids even in the 20s. Wow. So there is a genetic link with fibroids. But I mean, mainly between 30 and 40, that's the range that do, we normally see. Do them. fibroids stop growing once um, a woman finishes having uh, her, her periods? Yeah, yeah, they do because the hormonal stimulation to fibroids, which mainly is estrogen, is removed. So you will find that when they get to the menopause, they do shrink. Yeah. You know, especially the ones that are sort of small and then they become insignificant. But you get very large fibroids. I mean, those are difficult to shrink. There you, when they get to the menopause, we need to do a hysterectomy on them. Yeah. Very interesting. Do we know what causes them? Again, there's a genetic link to it, you know, but there's no definite cause. But we know that, you know, Estrogen, continual estrogen stimulation can cause that as well. Do you find that women are going into, uh, I think it's called perimenopause, um, younger and younger? Because a lot of girls are getting their periods younger and younger. Well, that's one of the uh, things about, you know, getting your periods younger. And then of course, you're going to get your menopause a little earlier. But one of the big causes of premature menopause that we see clinically, I mean, aside from the congenital and the genetic causes, is smoking. Smoking, I mean, a lot of our women smoke. That's interesting. 
and uh, they tend to get their menopause at least four years earlier than than normal. Yeah, which could you be know. disastrous if you're trying to have yeah, children. If, absolutely. Smoking is one big problem. Yeah. Um, Lisa, thank you so much. She says, can you discuss what causes excess growth of hair on a young adult and how do you treat it? Yeah, we we spoke about this a little a little earlier on. One yeah, of the, the main polycystic ovarian. Yeah, one of the main causes of excess hair is polycystic ovaries, right? Because you've got an excess hair uh, hormonal uh, uh, stimulation, excessive male hormonal stimulation. But there is also a thing called <clears throat> idiopathic hirsutism, where there's no polycystic ovaries, but still a person has got excessive hair growth. There's a genetic link there. There could be a genetic link. But polycystic ovary syndrome seems to be one of the main causes of uh, of hair growth. And it is very important. I mean, a lot of people go for laser treatment for, for this hirsutism, right? And it doesn't help. And the reason it doesn't help is because it is very important to first control the hormones that are causing it before you go for laser. So in other words, there's a hormone called androstene dion, which uh, if raised does cause hair growth, testosterone which raised if does cause hair growth. So it's extremely important to first control that and bring it to down to totally normal levels before you go for laser treatment. Associated with hair growth, there will be other conditions, like I mentioned, like insulin and like obesity. It is extremely important to actually get the weight down before you go for laser, because if you go for laser before you control the weight and before you control the hormones, you'll find that it does get a bit less, but the recurrence rate is very high. So if you want long-term long-term reduction in air growth. It's important to control weight. So in other words, like I said, lifestyle changes. Yeah. You know, what you've just described with with um, with the hair, with the hirsutism, um, this excess growth of hair yeah. and going for laser. It's like when you're, when you're driving in your car and your brake light goes on and you say, and you take it off to the mechanic and you say, look, my brake light went off. And your mechanic says, well, you know what, don't worry about it. We're just going to cut that wire. It'll no longer go off. You're not dealing with with the the actual actual problem, problem, the source of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's very important. Okay. Um, that's, That's it for the girls. Let's talk about male infertility. What are the different factors that cause male infertility? Okay. Male infertility, I mean, today is about 50% of the problem, you know. Uh, in fact, in, in our practice, we see more male infertility than female infertility, and a lot of it. Now, there are causes like genetic causes where, you know, cryptoarchism where you get undescended testes. And uh, if you've had undescended testes, if the person has had undescended te- testes, they will definitely have a problem. And sometimes you get a person who's only had one testis that is descend, undescended. And uh, usually in that case as well, the other testis is definitely infected. How, so, how will a man know if his, if his testes are undescended? Well, I mean, is it obvious? Is, yeah. it, is it very obvious? Yeah, in the sense that you don't feel it in the, in the test. And usually it's picked up at birth, you know. 
I mean, that's that's the important part. When they're young, they they have to they have this investig uh, examination and usually it's picked up there. So, are the, do the testes develop internally? Internally, and then they and never then they and they never kind yeah, of drop. Yeah, then they kind of drop. Okay. So, you know, those are those are congenital problems, right? <clears throat> and genetic problems. So the actual, but one of the big problems these days that we're battling with is environmental. And that causes a lot of, uh, you know, subfertile sperm. Smoking is a very important part of it. Again, yeah. Uh, it's a, it affects the motility of the, of the sperm. What about and alcohol? Alcohol, of course, excessive alcohol would, and I mean, recreational drug abuse. But one of the important parts, and I think people should be aware of this, right? And, and I don't know if you are aware of it, but you know these drinks that you drink, like Energade and all that? Mm, the high energy drinks. Right. They, they are actually bottled in plastic bottles, right? Those plastic bottles are produced, some of the, some of the, you know, uh, chemicals that are going to producing that are phytoestrogens, which is a female hormone. Right. So that actually affects the sperm quality a lot. Gosh. And I mean, we know that uh, the meat that we consume these days, right? Right, it's, it's packed with hormones. Right. Like chicken. Yeah. You don't even want to so know. It, that's right. So it finds its way into the food chain. Yeah. And these are environmental. I mean, our rivers are polluted. Everything, plastic bottles are thrown into the river, right? So fish get affected and we consume the fish. So somehow all of these environmental toxins, they get into the food chain and they affect sperm. Quality, and that is that is one of the major causes of sperm problems. Hmm. So it's very important for men to look after, especially men who are wanting to fall, you know, conceive, to look after what they consume, how they consume it, and then of course going to the gym. Now going to the gym is very good, but then they they have these, you know, shakes, muscle building shakes, the proteins, which actually affect sperm as well. How's that? Sorry. How does it affect the sperm? Well, it represses, I mean, some of these things have co- uh, hormones in it, you know. They have hormones because they use testosterone to build up muscle. Yeah. I mean, I had a, I had a man who was about 50, 50 years old. I mean, he was, he was bald. So, I mean, this guy was fertile, but he had such small testes because over a period of time he used these hormonal injections. And steroids. Yeah, and steroids, right? So he was built up like this, but he had such small testes. And uh, when we stopped that, when we stopped him using steroids and used nothing, within nine months his wife was pregnant. Sure. Because fortunately these things recover. Yeah. You know, they do recover, although they take a long time. They take about six months. But a lot of we see a lot of that as well. Do you follow uh, any of the research on soya? On soya? Mm. No, unfortunately I haven't. So, um, there's research that's coming out now. Uh, Denmark, France, and Israel have okay. actually banned giving soya products to children under the age of two. What they found is that when those uh, male children yeah. get to puberty, they yeah. grow breasts. Oh, okay. Which, which is quite interesting um, that they've... But those are the countries that have that have banned it. Um, I just wonder if there's anything, you know, any 
research or anything being done in South Africa, if there's any kind of awareness of that. I mean, with with all the world news, yeah, yeah. it's hardly a story. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not even competing. Um, so I just wondered, because, I mean, that could also be, I mean, it could be Absolutely. something that's Absolutely. going to have, uh, you know, this. it's going to enhance estrogen when, in child's early development. By the time they get to teenagehood, it's too late. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, there, there's so many yeah. different factors yeah. of that. Yeah. I'll actually send you the link to, to the research. I'd like I'm sure that, that yeah. You'd, yeah. Yeah. you'd find interesting. Yeah. I didn't come across it, but a lot of male infertility is linked to what you consume. Yeah. You know, it's a lot to link. Well, look what you've what mentioned. You I mean, yeah. you've mentioned, you know, the beef <coughs> and the chicken and yeah. the, yeah. you know, hormones that are milk. Our milk. Yeah. I mean, those, yeah. those dairy cows are just yeah. loaded. With, yeah, with hormones, yeah. and actually, it's probably not natural for human beings to adults to be yeah, drinking to milk. To be drinking milk, yeah, because <laughs> as well as the milk of of another of species. another beast, you yeah. see, that's the thing. It's meant for that cow's child, not for you, you see. But this is the story, and I mean, a lot of lot of male infertility today. If you ask me, is infertility increasing? Male infertility is definitely increasing. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got a we've got a question here. Wants to remain anonymous. It says transgender operations. Any comments? So I'm going to assume that the question is, <laughs> if somebody is transgender and they've had an operation, can they still have children? I don't think they'll have their own children. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, if they have a, you know, it depends. I mean, was it a transition from male to female? Yeah. It's unlikely that they'll be having children. Okay. Is it, do, how much do you know about transgender? I know a little is bit. Is it very expensive? It's, it's very expensive, the is operation. It, is it expensive? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not only expensive, it's um, it's a long process because there's... Firstly, of course, there's mental assessment. So, I mean, you need to do that so that you know you, you're sure you're doing the right thing. Mm. And then, of course, there's a hormonal preparation to it before the surgery. And it's easier to do male to female than female to male. Yeah. Why is that? Well, the surgery is easier. You know, there's more tissue to work with. Yeah. Very interesting. All right, back to male uh, infertility. I hope that that anonymous. I hope that that uh, answers your question. The other thing about male infertility is that, unfortunately, if you've got the severe form of it, where you, I mean, we have men that don't have any sperm. Again, whether it's obstructive or non-obstructive, there's very little treatment that you can do, and the only option seems to be IVF. And you can obtain you can obtain the sperm from the testes by a biopsy, provided it's an obst- it's an obstructive type of uh, azospermia, means no sperm. In other words, the testes is producing the sperm, but it's obstructed along the path where you know of ejaculation. But if the testes are actually not producing sperm, where you got testicular failure, then there's no treatment for it. And some of the conditions that that is in this chromosomal abnormal conditions like, you know, uh, <clears throat> azospermia where there's no sperm at all being produced. So if a man is not producing sperm, he can still produce ejaculate? 
Is that correct? Ejaculate will be produced, yeah. Because that's what the sperm is carrying. That's there. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just because... Um, but there'll be know, no sperm in there. Right, so just because your husband is ejaculating when when yeah. you're having intercourse... Doesn't mean, yeah. It doesn't mean that... Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you should go and get checked out, both, yeah. a, both a couple anyway. Yeah. In, in fact, a lot of people confuse, you know, ejaculation and impotence. If you tell them there's no sperm there, they'll tell you, but I get an erection, you know, as normal. But that, the testes are produced in a different, the, the sperm are produced in a different compartment and it doesn't affect your, your, your erectile function. So you're still functional in terms of the erection. Right. But you're not producing sperm. Right. I mean, think of yeah. men who have had vasectomies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that can still be very. Yeah. F- That's an obstructive type of. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, is a sperm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and in that case, we usually go for the testes and biopsy the testes and extract sperm from there. And with that sperm, you can perform IVF. Why would mumps cause infertility in, in men? Because, and, but that's only when it happens at the time of uh, after uh, it destroys <laughs> testicular tissue. Oh, really? It, yeah, yeah. It affects. And that uh, happens at the time of puberty. Or puberty, yeah, and after, yeah. 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 The virus. It's a virus, so it affects the testicular tissue. Sure. So many different aspects. Yeah. To to fertility, um, we've got to take an ad break, but when we resume, in a in about a minute from now, we're going to go through uh, any of your questions, send them through three four five one nine, or on WhatsApp zero six two. One four eight two three seven four. We'll get to them. We're going to wrap up shortly, and um, also to find out what what couples can do. You know, so many different factors. So, uh, is this a very long process in terms of diagnosis? Is it him? Is it her? Because ultimately, it doesn't really matter where the where the let's say the blame lies, or whether you know who who it is who can't conceive. Because ultimately, it's it's. The po- it is the problem of the couple. So, uh, yeah, stay with us. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Kathy Kayla, and uh, we're about to wrap up this Discam Medical Monday. My guest is Dr. Gulam Hussein Mohammed. He's a gynecologist. He's uh, yeah, he's a specialist gynecologist. We've been talking about male and female fertility. And, you know, whether it's him, whether it's her, ultimately it's the couple's, it's the couple's challenge. So, uh, if you're a couple, go and get checked out. Is it a very long process to find out, um, you know, where the infertility lies? Usually it's not. Usually, I mean, within a month, one can actually, uh, pinpoint the problem and start treatment. What we like to do is we like to see the couple together. We prefer to see the couple during her menses, okay? Because usually on the third day of a period, one can do all the blood tests, which will give you an idea of what the hormonal situation of the female partner is. After after a period, we can either do a lab scope or a X-ray, which is an HSG, which will give you an idea of whether the tubes are open. So that's another sort of a aspect that has been ruled out. In between that period, one can do the sperm test, which, uh, uh, you know, you can get a result within an hour. 
And on the 21st day of a period, we usually do what is known as a progesterone test that tells us whether the female partner is ovulating or not. So from the first day of the period till the end of that month, we can do all the tests comprehensively if they come during the period. Once all that is done, we have an idea of what the problem is, and it's easier to choose an option of management. What we find that by the time patients come to us, they've been going to general practitioners and other gynecologists who don't have an interest in fertility, that they've been going from one, you know, a lot of times patients are put onto clomid on speculation. And by the time they come to us, they're extremely frustrated. So what we normally do is we give them a plan and we tell them, look, it'll take us a month to pinpoint the problem. We will then to make a plan of action for you and we would try fertility, a particular treatment for three months. If it doesn't work, we take a two-month break and we go on to the next step. And then if that doesn't work, we go on to, we take a two-month break and we go on to the next step. Right, so it's almost like a forecast. Yeah. So you can see what's coming. That's right. And usually we take a break of two months because a lot of times women during that break fall pregnant. And if you give these people a plan of what we're going to do over the next six to eight months, they feel better. And it's important for them to feel better because that de-stresses them. It makes management of the couple much easier. Hmm. All right. So how do we, you know what, I'm going to get all your contact details. I'm going to post them on uh, the HIFM Facebook page. That's right. So that anybody wanting to get in touch with you can do so. Just one more question. Are all of these tests covered by medical aid? Well, yeah, the tests are covered by medical aid. Unfortunately, IVF is not covered by medical aid. That's really? the problem, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's very sad. Yeah, um, it is. One last uh, question on the SMS unsigned, saying, "What is the success rate of IVF percentage-wise?" Okay. Great question. Thank you so much. The the percentage-wise actually differs from lab to lab, but generally worldwide, it's about thirty-five percent below the age of thirty-five. After the age of 35, it starts dropping. What is also very important is that these days we're finding that when we do IVF and we freeze all the embryos and put them back in a normal cycle, the success rates are higher. So with the freezing of the embryos, the success rates can approach 50 to 60%. Dr. Mohammed has been... Fascinating talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, if you've just joined us now and you want to hear the rest of this, uh, this Discam Medical Monday, get to the website highfm.com, C-H-A-I-F-M.com. Go and look up uh, Discam Medical Monday on the podcasts. Click on it and it will be up there and it uh, should be up there by this afternoon. So uh, to my guest, Dr. Gulam Hussain Mohammed, thank you very, very much for uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge with us this morning. And to you, God bless. Have a great week. I'll see you same time, same place next Monday. Bye.